Hi and welcome to episode 58 of the <coughs> Right. Hi and welcome to This episode is brought to you by Offizen, a South African recruitment startup for developers. Offizen inverts the normal recruitment process. Instead of applying for jobs, 350 tech companies in Cape Town, Johannesburg and Pretoria send developers interview requests with upfront salary info. For developers, it's completely free to sign up and use. In fact, you get 5,000 Rand if you take a job through them. Visit offerzen.com to sign up. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. Episode 58 of the Zeta Dev Chat Podcast. Tonight on the show, we're joined by Chantal. Hello. Kevin. Hello, hello. Len. Bonjour. And our guest is Kevin Trithiwi. Hello, Kevin. Good evening. This is not going to get confusing. Kevin, thanks for, for joining us tonight. Um, I think as, well, we've had you on the show before for the spinal, spinal chat with uh, Donnie Rue. Um, but I think tonight we're going to be diving in a bit more about your history, your journey to where you got to today, uh, the great company you're running with a crackshot team. So why don't you start us off taking us back as far as possible for when this whole computer world started for you? Um, sure. It depends how far back you want to go. Um, I started out as an electrician, actually. Um, but my problem in life is that once i know how to do something i'm completely bored by it um so that lasted about three months and uh, then i through some various routes ended up studying at Helen pritchard okay uh, I don't okay know guys ever so that was a they did stage it was 1998 cobol on paper uh eight hour exams yeah you're the second guest we've got on that studied at Fonsal and Pritchard, Mike Hewitson was also also there. Okay, yeah, it was a good system in its time. Uh, I'm not sure if they're still going. Uh, they're still going. My cousin's studying through them. And a, a guy I employed a few years ago at a previous company also came from there. Yeah, I often used to drive past them and see them running there. They had a very good reputation. So with me, I had no, I mean, when I left school, I didn't even know how to turn on a computer. And when I went there I still was basically knew nothing but they had an aptitude test and if you passed the aptitude test you were in uh, and that's sort of how I got started it and COBOL on paper how far did that get you uh, well I was never paid to write a line of COBOL so um, you know I had calluses on my fingers after the six-month course but uh, never actually did any COBOL language I was paid to do is was uh, APL actually and I'm I'm really glad to be able to say that because the second language was VB. APL, did you ever do that one line, Game of Life? Uh, I saw it, um, but <laughs> I couldn't really figure it out. APL's uh, supposed to be the, the, the world's only runny language. What do you mean by write only? Uh, <laughs> once you write it, you can't really read it. Um, I believe Pearl comes for that prize every now and then. So APL's got uh, symbols. You have to put a mask over the keyboard, to, and it's sort of all alt characters. And then the the meaning of any symbol depends what's on this, what symbols are the left and the right of it. Oh wow! So what kind of systems did you write with APL? Um, so Brightsparks that hired me uh, had written a logistics management system, a warehouse management. It was actually quite cutting edge for the time. When about was this? Uh, 99, 99. Okay. I mean, did you guys suffer from any YTK problems or was that just a walk in the park with the new system? I, I kind of missed that whole thing. So I think a lot of people were tra getting trained on COBOL to go into the banks and earn the big bucks doing that. But I sort of joined just at the back end of being able to do anything useful around that. And I'm just curious because I, that was just hype at that stage. And I was just in high school, so I had no idea what the, the problem was this, like to 
one day actually learn how many systems didn't make it through that and what the repercussions were about them but that 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 part that <laughs> and uh, after that building logistic systems where did your journey take you to next there was a few things but the the next big thing was uh, i worked for an r d company uh, and uh, that was a really nice place to cut my teeth because they used to come up with bright product ideas and then we used to try and see if they would fly um so you know one of the projects i did was uh, the yellow pages at that stage didn't have a digital version of their directory. So we got hold of all of the telephone directories in the whole country, cut the spines off, borrowed a high scanner to evaluate it, scanned them all in and wrote O software to uh, get all the numbers. So that was quite fun. Was that easier than getting a database or was that telling to how the yellow pages ran at the time? Um, so I'm not sure the details are all that interesting. Uh, it was very, one of the products they built was check guaranteeing. So they uh, wanted to guarantee by confirming your residential address against your phone number. Going way back, remember, so I mean, a lot of things were quite different in, in those days. And from there? Uh, then I started contracting and consulting, uh, worked a bit for De Beers, uh, Faratech. I did a year at Red 5 Labs with Armand. Uh, the Sumian stuff. That he would have mentioned. Um, I was trying to get the uh, Windows Forms running on uh, um, Symbian. Yeah, that was interesting, the stuff Armand did with Symbian. We touched a little bit about it in the last show we, we recorded with him, including that uh, getting the Nokia browser, open source browser compiling with some JavaScript uh, native bridges and whatnot. Were you involved in that little effort there? No, no, I wasn't specifically involved with that. Um, the guy you should get on is Mike Wellam. Um, he's probably the best programmer I've met in terms of what he's able to do. Oh, definitely. Thanks. And uh, after Armand, what was uh, the next interesting stop? So, yeah, then the iPhone came out. Uh, we were done there. And... Uh, I started doing more consulting and contracting, and I was very involved in the community at that stage. So I don't know if you, ever, you, you remember SA Developer? Yes. <laughs> so I, I ran the Joburg branch of SA Developer for a year or so. Um, and then in 2008, um, I started Driven. And what was the impetus for, for starting Driven? Uh, I guess this is the point I'm supposed to tell you some sort of end philosophy um, but there really wasn't one at the time. I needed something to build through. Uh, I was working for a consulting company that was taking 30% of my invoices in exchange for finding work, and they were finding SharePoint stuff, um, which I wasn't really interested in. And at the time, I'd have been very active in the community, had a pretty wide network, and, and the kind of work that I could find for myself was way more interesting. So I needed a vehicle to build through, and that's why I registered Driven Software. I think that's a very common reason for people to start. Uh, it's just the financial things. Yeah, that was really the, the reason. And as I, I mentioned earlier before we started, it was that's sort of, I don't want to lie to you. I think yeah, it's the second company I started. Um, the first one was actually with Armand and Tia Berger. We started a company called Cubic Orange. That was really early in my career, and it was way too early to be trying to start a company. Um, and even with when I started Driven, I wasn't in a position to, you know, f create an organization. Um, that took a couple of years to get to that point. So at what point then did you start bringing new people onto the team with Driven? Or start building a team at Driven, I guess I could say. So, yeah, what happened was I decided I was going to be a businessman and I was going to do an MBA and I was going to take life seriously. And I realized after a while, probably after a bit too long, that the kind of coaching and consulting and mentoring work that I was doing, that was my real value system. And the way I was being business, Kevin, just wasn't me and it wasn't comfortable and it wasn't fun. And at that point, I decided to throw out all of the rule books and the textbooks and not do an MBA or anything like that and just figure out what I wanted to optimize for and do that. And so for me, that, that's really when Driven Start is the point when I had that realization. Uh, and that's also when Driven started to grow. That must have been quite a scary and interesting moment for you to just sort of say, 
we throw all this like knowledge out the window and, and start again? Actually, it was a complete breath of fresh air. It it just was a weight off my shoulders. Uh, fortunately, I married a chartered accountant, so I, I do that. <laughs> That's always very useful. Yeah. So um, my the first person that joined me at Driven was Garrett Smith. Uh, you might know him from around. Yeah, we've had him on the show here before. Yeah. So it's an awesome guy, and he was employee two into Driven. Um, but then his direction sort of headed more in doing Ruby and open source sort of, and that wasn't really what we were doing. So uh, he left, and Mark Pearl joined at the same time. So Mark Pearl was uh, third. Yeah, we were around that time. Um, I think that was around about the time that I met you, Kevin. Um, I had come across Driven through uh, seeing Garen speak at one of the Devs for Devs days at Microsoft, where, as you say, Ruby open source. He was talking about using Ruby as a build system for .NET. But that that was my kind of first impetus into seeing Driven Driven software. Yeah, that was based off a build system that he built uh, with the team that we were working with at a bank, I expect. Yeah, I can't remember the detail now. <laughs> so, so I'm curious here, in the early days, or if you think back to those early days of Driven, what advice would you have given yourself? And I guess through that advice for any uh, listeners that's thinking of starting a consultancy or any kind of freelance work that's got to form it like turn into a business yeah that's that's a good question and i i really don't like giving advice um you know it's one of the things about driven is that i've always said that i, I want people that are extensions of my brain not of my hands in that you know i have a hard enough time making decisions for myself i really don't want to be making decisions for other people and so you know, I, I'm always happy to share my thoughts on things and to think through things with Will, but I'm terrible at giving advice and it's not usually a good idea for me to do that. Um, I think one of the big things that I, I, I do well with Driven and that I, I would advise myself to have sort of picked up earlier is, is to, to think really long term. Um, you know, I, I kind of think about Driven, what's Driven going to look like in 30 years time? Um, the thing that actually got me doing that is, is I, I, I bought a piece of land. It's just an open field um, a bunch of years ago and then started converting that into my dream home and started planting trees. And, you know, there's the old saying, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is now. And, and in doing that and looking at, you know, what is this property going to look like at 30 years time, I started to see how my decisions were shifting. And I started to apply the same thinking to Driven. And you start different decisions. You start to, you know, the, the details stop bugging you as much. And you, you start to, to see patterns in things. And I think that's a, a very important thing to be able to see. In a, in a concrete sense, how, you know, maybe you could give us an example of how that's... My basic philosophy with Driven is not to decide what services we're going to provide and then figure out what the steps are in providing those services and then find a square-shaped person to go there and a circle-shaped person to go there and then run the service. Um, that's not how, you know, that's, that might have been how I would do it in the beginning of Driven. Um, but now it's more the idea that if you find competent, motivated people who want to learn and go further and you just put that group together and be sure about what you're optimizing for and then you allow what you do as an organization to emerge out of that uh, that's sort of more the approach that we've taken when you try to tell clients about your approach how difficult have you found that because it sounds kind of scary from the outside that you're living this free life right but at some point you have to make money so again, it goes back to maybe why advice is not a good thing. You have to look at the actual local context. Um, we've done very little marketing of our services or cold calling or nandi. Um, it's based purely on on reputation and relationships. And so we've, you know, basically over the years we've done good work, which has 
led to more work and we've had achievements which have led to higher achievements and the whole thing sort of just feeds itself we don't have a sales pipeline uh, or anything like that we've just got people that call us because they know that if they're stuck we can we can help and and do you would you attribute your success in in projects and things to anything in particular like do you or methodology that you follow? Look, I, I've I got an interest in methodologies very early on in my career. Um, that stuff that I was doing with the, the R&D company that I mentioned before was very much a waterfall style of things. And as energizing as it was to work like that, many of things never, ever saw the light of day. Um, and then I came across Extreme Programming X back in 2004, uh, and I really got energized by that different style of working. And when I then started working in large corporates, I think it's actually kind of a benefit that I don't have a very uh, sort of formal background. I didn't go to university or anything like that. And so I didn't do any accounting or business economics or anything like that. And when I see what organizations are doing, there's a bunch of things that just don't seem logical. And I think I can see that because I've got a you know, I sort of came there via a slightly different route. Yeah, so it's almost an advantage that you don't have these preconceived ideas about how it, quote unquote, should work. You're able to look at it fresh and yes. have an open exactly, mind. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's part of my nature, it's become part of Driven's nature, to just constantly ask, could this be better? You know, where are we now and how could this be better? And if you relentlessly ask that question, and if as an, an organization we ask it for the next 30 years, I think we end up in a good place. And in fact, we're proving that. In a way, it seems like that's the key to remaining agile, isn't it? Yeah, so again, I, I, I'm non-aligned when it comes to these agile versus waterfall versus lean versus. I'm, I'm far more keen on, you know, where are we now? Where are we trying to go? How? would better look like you know what can we amplify and i pull stuff from all sorts of different places to answer those questions i don't think the moment you get into conversations of is this agile or not and i know that's not what you're suggesting but it's kind of a, a, a soapbox moment when somebody mentions that right right mm -hmm. I, I should have used the word uh, flexible i guess or agility yes exactly if you're constantly asking how can this be better and you're never completely satisfied with this now then you know, I think I think you get to a better place. Well, that's pretty inspiring, I guess, for people starting out as well to know that it's possible without having a lot of this foundational stuff to, to make a success of it. Yeah, when I started working on some bigger clients, I used to stop outside the doors of the building and tell myself, I had this little mantra, you know, if if I get discovered today and they realize I don't really know what I'm doing, I would have learned so much and it's been an awesome journey and then our building. And <laughs> what I've learned over time is that everybody's doing that. We're all making it up as we go along from the CEO to, you know, nobody's got a crystal ball on how this stuff's going to work out and, and we all make it up as we go along. I, I happen to firmly agree with you on that point. I think the saying is fake it till you make it. Yeah, I, I never really thought that I was faking it. I was always sort of pissed about what I could and couldn't do. But yeah, the, the word faking it, I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with. It's, it's more, if you're adding value, people will keep you around. And, and that's a bit of a, an F word. But if, if you're constantly trying to be competent and engaged and you're invested in what you're doing and trying to figure it out, that's actually not all that common these days, I think. Kenneth and I were listening to that interview with Scott Adams, the, the Billboard cartoon guy, and his uh, main uh, sort of advice to anybody was just be useful. Brilliant advice, yeah. yeah. I think that's exactly. so important. That's, yeah. That sums it up well, and I'm a, I'm a big fan of his. Um, he's got a book out, which I'm now not going to be able to remember the title of, but uh, it's actually a fantastic business book. I'll maybe make it a pick at the end and then do a quick Google. Thanks. I'm curious how you kind of grew the team. I mean, I guess part of, of growing driven and, and gaining this good reputation that you guys have in the market has been attracting the crack shot team. I mean, it's always 
difficult to find good people, no matter if it's for skills or for just aptitude. Like how did you go about it? And how long did it take to, to build up the team as it is today? So Driven's eight years old, and I think we're at 12 people now. Um, so it's been very, very slow, very intentional. Um, one of my worst nightmares would be to to suddenly mushroom to 40 people and we we don't know each other well, we don't have different value systems and then you're you're managing people. That's not happy for me. So it was more a question of, you know, just being involved in the community, doing interesting work, trying to find people whose value systems are the same as as mine and as Driven's. And uh, yeah, so we, we are very active in the community. We run the code retreats, a bunch of Driven people are involved in the developer user group and you you tend to pick up the people who are sort of looking for for what driven does um the fact that we treat people as people and that you get to you know to to the key difference i suppose and it goes back to what i was saying earlier about being different and running the company differently a typical company puts profit at the center uh, and then the people live in service of the profit and what happens then and it's you know it's not a bad thing to do it's it's the typical way of doing it but i find that ends up with the machine and the people live in service of the machine and people who are really trying to make things better and in are trying to actually progress and and really invested in what they're doing living in service of the machine is not a happy and so what we put at the center, is, the word we use is mastery. Um, and by mastery, we mean self-actualization, actually figuring out what energizes you and what you want to do and how you're going to do it. And we believe if we optimize for mastery, profit is important, but it's a necessary condition. It's It's not the primary focus. So we end up optimizing for humans and the machine lives in service of the humans rather than the humans living in service of the machine. And I think when you you do that for real, it attracts the people who want to be a part of that. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of, of putting it to kind of flip more, invert the way you think about that. And again, you know, um, Shanaz was employee four into Driven and she's a chartered accountant. She's got a very traditional background. And she brings in some yin to that yang, you know, she's, we have very hard conversations when she feels like we're, we're going sort of a little bit too far off um, and, and we find the balance and, and that's, every, you know, everybody in Driven has a strong voice about, about where we're going and sometimes it can feel a little bit chaotic or lacking direction, but after a bit of that, we, we find where we're going and how we can support each other and, and I find that. Um, for example, the Sisonke program is one of the things that emerged out of that process. So, in, for example, with Sisonke, you're keeping uh, mastery at the center of your business as you know everything is in service of uh, of this ideal, of this value. What other things have you or have you found coming out of? Flipping the way of thinking to have mastery instead of profit as the at the center has what has come out of that that surprised you or uh, would make a good story? So, I mean, the the, the code retreats that we've and the uncon we do an annual unconference that's come out of it, but it's more I think the individual stories and the fact that people have been able to really grow as individuals. Um, you know, I all the raw material was there when people joined driven but it's fantastic to watch how they thrive um i'm i'm nervous to tell people stories for themselves but um if you've if you've seen driven people you know there's there's a certain level of, of competence there that that has grown yeah i'm i'm struggling to come up with a direct story without letting people speak for themselves um but i do have them I, I, that, I mean, that that's fantastic. I think people, whenever I've had encounters with anyone who, who you work with there at Driven, I've always thought, this is a really team. So, so one of the things I believe is that you shouldn't give your own identity up 
to be part of a team. You know, when when driven people stand up and do things, they do it under their own name. And so you might actually even be aware of of the fact that driven is involved in it. And and I like that and I want that because you know, we 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 use other strengths and combine to make a great team, but at the end of the day, you've you've got to stand on your own two feet as well. That's definitely been my impression of meeting different team members over the years at the community events. It's it's almost an afterthought that they work um, with Driven or for Driven. And then you go, when you start connecting the dots and you realize, yeah, okay, all these people have the same, I guess, the same values, the same kind of energy, positivity, and, and yet they stand on their own. It's not like they out there. And then they're also proud to be associated. It's always like either have a shirt on or it's a Driven logo on the slides. It's, it's really great. Thank you. I want to take a moment to tell you about OfferZen. OfferZen connects you with more than 350 South African companies that are hiring developers. Instead of dealing with recruiters or applying to dozens of jobs individually, on OfferZen, companies apply to you. To get started, just sign up on OfferZen.com and build a profile. Once you're ready, your profile is made visible to the companies hiring on OfferZen. Companies interested in you will send you an interview request with details about the job, including upfront salary info. So if you're looking for work or want to hire developers, check them out at OfferZen.com. That's O-F-F-E-R-Z-E-N.com. And I, I wanted to ask, you run, the, well, Theo and Mandela is running Sezonki Rising from your house. Um, they said you built them a separate room on the property that they, that they use. Was that part of your 30-year plan for the property, uh, to have that extra space, or did that just like kind of happen? Well, it's, it's maybe a, a good example of asking that question of how could this happen. Um, the 30-year plan of Driven is to have a system where a 10-year-old kid from Deepslip can have, you know, who does, he doesn't even know how to switch on a computer, but he can come and he can learn that. And, and if he finds that he has a particular aptitude and interest in it, then he can... Um, become a student and maybe an apprentice into Driven and then perhaps work on a dev team and then start consulting and be a coach or start his own business or his own startup and become an entrepreneur. And so Driven becomes kind of a spiral where if wherever you are in the spiral, there's somebody who's ahead of you that can help pull you forward and there's people who you pull up as well. And so it's more of a guild system where you have a progression along that rather than a hierarchy. And so how Sisonke started more or less is that um, I, I bought a whole bunch of Python for kids books and just started giving them out. I wanted to see, well, I suppose one, one step back before then, um, at one of our clients, we run a, an annual VAC work program over December. Uh, just getting kids from the university in, giving them a bit of experience. And I love asking them a question of why did you choose programming as a career? And one of the guys who was there, he, his story was that a, a PC format magazine accidentally got delivered to parents' house. And when he read the PC format magazine, he got excited about game programming and programming. And, and, and now he was at university getting great results and his whole life ahead of him. And I thought, well, if if really all it takes is a PC format magazine in every post box, I can do that now. Uh, I'm, you know, so the experiment that I designed for that was I bought ten Python for Kids books, and I just tried to find domestic workers who had kids or anything like that where I could just get those books into laps and see was that enough. Um, did they also need a computer? Did they also need some assistance? What else was necessary? What's the minimum that would actually get kids into programming? Um, and that's around about the time when Mandla joined. And I talked about that to Mandla, and my being Mandla said, okay, cool, I'm in. Let's do it on Saturday. I don't know, okay. Um, but that's just kind of the guy he is, and he just was off and running. And Saturday we had the Sasonke class, and you know, Shanaz is um, my wife, the, the CA. She's very energized by logistics and organizing things. And she organized a, a small room that sort of could fit five people. And they started there. Um, five became too many. You know, the, the group grew too big for that area. Um, so we found another 
place that they could go to, but that wasn't quite ideal. And in hunting around to all the different schools in the area, they were all willing to look until they found out that it was kids from Deep Slurt and Eleven Oat Bosch. And so at that point, we said, well, if that's the case, you know, we, we, we're fortunate to have um, a fairly large property in Midrand. And so we said, well, let's just build a cabin on the property and then we're not struggling for, for classroom space every time. So we built a, a six by eight meter log cabin and kitted it out. And now on Saturdays, that's where the, the kids come and they learn. And I guess the, the key thing there is it's just constantly saying, well, how can this be better? What's the next step? And the, the central theme of Sisonke is we optimize for learning. So we don't do formal curriculum. We don't do formal teacher-student relationship. We just constantly say, okay, if we were purely optimizing for learning, what would we do next? And that's how it's kind of emerged. So you mentioned that um, the venues was a bit, finding a venue was a bit of an issue. What were some of the other challenges you found um, with running this program? It's a good question. Um, I think the, the big challenge at the moment, you know, because I, I tend to not remember the little challenges along the way. The, the big challenge at the moment is that, that there is a difference between a kid who learns computers on a Saturday and somebody who can get paid for their coding skill. And it's how we bridge that divide that is the, the, the thing that we're grappling with at the moment. We have a few ideas and, and a few ways we can go forward. Uh, but that's that's probably our meatiest challenge right now from from my perspective. Um, and the other is just we're, we're starting to get to the point where some sort of curriculum would be valuable. Um, and we have kids that have been coming for a while now and they they're going at quite a fast speed and there's newer kids coming in. And our idea, our idea was always that the new kids that can get taught by the kids who've been around for a while. But we need to kind of firm up exactly the mechanism that that works by because at the moment we find us slowing down for the newer kids, which then frustrates the, the kids that have been around for a while. So it sounds like you need more people to get involved. Definitely, definitely. So we're, we're always looking for mentors who can come and, and build a relationship with the kids. And to, you know, that, that's where it is for us is, is this program, we want to design it in such a way as that it can be owned by the software developer community at large. Um, that's really where the success is going to come from. Um, if, if people can take a personal interest in one or two students and really help them on their path, I, I think that's how it will work the best. Then we, we've got people who come in and, and just teach a particular class. So we, we've got four different ways of getting involved. If you go to sisonkerising.com, um, you can read up about it. We've got an option to just be a sort of a monthly sponsor, which is really helpful, uh, or else being a mentor to the kids, which is then obviously a, a bigger investment uh, and a couple of other options and ways people can get involved. Um, Lance Gleason, I think, is probably a friend of the show as well. He's been really instrumental in, in getting computers. You know, so we, that's one thing fortunate is that the computers just arrived. We never really struggled to find computers for the kids to work with. And that was largely thanks to the influence of Len, I think. Uh, Lance, not Len, sorry. Yeah, no, we've uh, always wanted to say smuggled many of those laptops uh, up from Ruby Fusa when Lance pulls strings there. It's amazing It's to see most of the international um, attendees like basically just give a laptop. Um, or there was one year a, a guy from Amazon who and and from GitHub, two different people who brought a bunch of old machines uh, from their co colleagues with, so they both flew in with like five or six laptops, and we threw them all in the bag, and got quite funny looks at at airport security. Yeah, <laughs> I remember having all those back up to Joburg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, many <laughs> several times. Yeah, no, given this Sazonki story is is amazing. I mean, when we had Mandla and, and Theo on a while ago to chat about it as well, I love. Uh, just following along and, and seeing what they're doing. And definitely, if anybody listening wants to get involved, go check out the website. I'll add some links to the to the show notes. I also want to ask about the, the code retreats. We had, uh, we've had Yanko on before, and we've had Martin Cronier about the, the mob retreat and code retreat combination. I mean, that's 
still going strong and and there's the glo global global day of code retreats up very soon now yeah and we're we'll definitely we're thinking of doing a legacy code retreat for that actually tell us a bit about what a legacy code retreat is um, i'm actually not 100% sure of the format i think we've done one before but it's essentially in, you know the traditional code retreat format is that you work on the game of life and uh, you you work with a new partner every 45 minutes and you get to see how different people approach design and coding and the different little tricks and tips that they use. And you learn to share your code and you learn to write code and throw it away. And you learn test-driven development and all these nice little head fake things you learn when you think you're learning something else. Uh, legacy code retreat is the way I understand it is they, you start with a really broken piece of software and then iteratively work through improving it and getting it to a better place still using the dynamics of a, of a code retreat format. And so, you know, for people who are new to or have never been to code, re code retreat before, it's really not a competitive format. It's, it's not about testing your skills against other people or being found out for not being a hardcore hacker. It's just a bunch of people getting together and sharing what they know. And it's, it's a really energizing, fun day. And you, you know, sometimes you come away feeling like you didn't know as much as you, you thought you did, but it's really just, again, optimizing for learning uh, and it's a very powerful format. One of my favorite moments at the code retreat is after the first session when the code gets deleted to see people's faces. <laughs> it's the first time they've ever done that. Yeah, I think Kevin's favorite is, uh, is not that. Um, ask Gabriel. And uh, so that's, I mean, that's two great things uh, you guys do with that focus on, on putting mastery at the at the center i wonder how, when you work with clients does this rub off on them i mean i guess it's very difficult to measure but i mean do you get people that you've worked with like some time ago coming back saying they're still kind of asking those hard questions about making things better that they've like changed their processes over time i just want to like find out if it's contagious in a good way so I guess we don't really, when we're working, make a big distinction between who's driven and who's the client. We just learn together. And, and yes, it's, it's definitely, it definitely rubs off. But also, it's a very slow and gradual thing. You know, as driven, we, we're very much into long-term high-trust relationships. Um, so we don't do a lot of work, which is sort of the big transformational we're going to shift the whole organization in three months here's your training sort of stuff um, the sort of work we get involved with is more after people have been through the three months in the training and they realize it's perhaps harder than they expected and then we get involved and we really help people actually do the stuff um, so if you're going to shift from an environment which is is very predictive and maybe you you built your software and you deliver it once after six months or after a year and then you're going to start working in an environment where you have to have continuously working software and, and release feature after feature and constantly keep going you have to think very differently uh, and really that's what we help people understand is the different mindset that's involved in that um, one of the the big things that i struggle with and i don't know if this is answering your question but I guess it is in a way is, is as driven, we optimize for group productivity, you know, productivity of the team. And one of the biggest challenges with the clients that we work with is often people are heavily incentivized to optimize for individual productivity. And it's teaching people how energizing it is to actually function as a team and each other up for success. Um, I think it's quite sad that actually very few people have ever really, really experienced that. But once you have, you'll never want to work on a team that's not like that again. And I guess that's where it rubs off. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And maybe a slightly different question, um, maybe a bit awkward, feel free to, to not answer, but have you ever had to fire a client? Like, and I, and I ask if you got into an environment where there was absolute value clash or whatever other reason that you guys just simply couldn't work together. Yeah, we've we've had a lot of hard, hard lessons along the way. Um, we've never had to fire a client, as far as I can recall. We've come we've come fairly close. Uh, what we have had is a, situations where we say, "Listen, we've gone as far as we can. Here are the reasons why. 
here are the things we suggest you change in order for us to progress further. And until you've done that, we're actually not able to help you any more than we have. Um, but I don't think firing a client is useful. You have to try and figure out where it is that the breakdown is and, and sort of give them insight into that. Um, the closest we've come is when, when a particular client didn't pay our invoices, um, but we were able to resolve that. Because our, our basic principle is that if you don't believe we've delivered value, then don't pay our invoice. Um, so that's a, a basic agreement we have with all of our clients. But the caveat is that they also need to give us strong feedback on how they feel we're doing and where we prove so that we can we can make the adjustments. And we did have a client that we had some challenges with with that. Uh, but we got past it and we're now actually starting to to work there again. Wow, no, that's that's great. I just ask, because uh, I guess the reality of running a business is not all just rainbows and unicorns. And well, the first client that I took when I started Driven as a as a company and registered it was a fixed fixed scope uh, piece of work where they were eighty percent done, but the developer had left. Now, if, if you've been in for a, more than half an hour, you you should be able to smell the problems with that one. And I actually ended up nearly getting sued for it for the that work, um, and so that was is, was a very rough sort of introduction to world. Yeah, it's that second eighty percent. Yeah, that takes so the that's longest. I suppose some of the lessons we've learned is is when we get involved with a client, we we look for the smallest possible experiment that we can do, and we we do that and we explore. You know, is it working for us? Is it working for them? Are we able to progress? and uh, sort of applying an agile approach to everything we do, the contracting, the relationship side, the delivery. It's all just about finding that small piece of value and amplifying it from there. And delivering that value early on in the engagement probably just helps build up the trust very, very quickly. It's it's absolutely key. I mean, we, we started with a new client in early July. And we started on one-week iterations, uh, which is is brutal um, in a in a corporate environment, and we failed eight times in eight weeks, um, and it was hard, and it forced hard conversations, and it it got a little bit iffy at times, um, but we've made it past there. And the thing that got it past was just having something delivered, and the minute you've got something delivered and some value there you know, just breathes oxygen into the environment and you then can play. Yeah, I'm sure we can speak all night about interesting um, interesting stories we've all had in consulting, uh, working in industries throughout the years. But can I pull the conversation in a slightly different direction? Uh, still kind of really driven though, is you've got the unconference that you run once a year. Uh, tell us a bit about that. What what are the major things that made you want to run an unconference as opposed to, I guess, a conference? Because I know you've also been involved in Agile Africa. Um, and I haven't been to any of the Driven Unconferences. I think, Len, you've been there. Kenneth, I don't know if you have. Uh, but yeah, perhaps can you just tell us a bit about that and what the story is there? Sure. So if you haven't heard about an unconference, the basic premise is that at a regular conference, the, the built-in assumption is that the guy at the front with the slide deck knows the most about the whole topic. And that's very rarely the case. Often they know a lot about it, but there might be other people in the room who know a little bit more about certain parts of it. And it would be nice to actually hear all of those voices. And what you tend to find is that the most interesting conversations and the most learning happens between the sessions at the coffee pot. So the idea of the unconference yeah. is, uh, have you found that? Is, is that your yep. experience as well? Yeah, the, the hallway track. Uh, that's, I mean, I think of a JSNSA conference a few years ago where Kenneth, Len, and I ended up sitting outside busy hacking on a problem rather than in talks for half the day. Yeah, exactly. So, so what would happen if you had a conference which was just hallway track? And that's sort of the premise of the unconference is that you build the agenda the first activity and then you hold that conference but it's done in a very conversational style so that there's very few presentations of things it's more just a flip chart and a group of people who are passionate about that topic pulling it apart and, and discussing it and so the reason I particularly wanted to do one was that 
I find specifically in Joburg that we have a culture where people are very family orientated in that they they stay at home and then they go to work and back home again. And you find that there's some really great stuff happening in Joburg when it comes to software development, but people aren't talking to each other so much. And so there's a lot of isolated pockets of really interesting things, but also people struggling on the same thing. And, you know, it's driven because we work across a few places, we get to see that. So we thought, well, what would happen if we did an unconference over a whole weekend? And we tried to find people who were doing interesting things in software and just invited them all to a weekend away where we had an unconference. And so we've done it three times. Uh, the first time was with 30 people, then it was with 40, and, and this year it was with 60. And we're just trying to we're just trying to grow it one size too many and then pull it back again to just find what the, a, a great number would be. But the basic premise is find people doing interesting stuff in around Joburg and even wider and invite them to a weekend way to talk to each other about it. So is next year is going to be bigger or smaller, I guess, is one question. So we, we do it in the last weekend of July and uh, we're definitely going to grow at one size more so probably about 80 people um because yeah we, we haven't found the upper bound yet uh, len what you've been to to all of them so far i believe what's what's your takeaway been yeah i've been privileged to be at all of them um i think it's growing really nicely and i i do think that it's an interesting experiment to have it's it's a it's a really great format and have you found that you've been able to get people from different parts of Johannesburg out uh, or around the country out uh, to, to discuss these topics? And where, are, where do you get them to? Where do you actually take them? Uh, so, so far, we've used Hire Safari Ranch, which is just out of Joburg. And you, you feel like you're in the bush, but it's not a far drive, kind of nice and convenient. And then, yeah, it's just we started out just sort of inviting the people we know. And then as we've got on, we sort of have a, a basic characteristic that if you've been before and you know somebody who fits and then invite them, but then just allowing that to sort of grow at the right pace. And then this year, we, we experimented with the idea of acceptation. I don't know if you guys have come across that word before. No. Nope. Please define it. So it was Dave Snowden actually introduced me to the word, and it's from evolutionary theory. So we tend to think of evolution in terms of adaptation, survival of the fittest. Your traits adapt over time, and 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 that results in an evolutionary process. But another important component of evolution is adaptation, where a trait that evolved for one particular purpose suddenly becomes useful for something else. So, for example, feathers, the theory is that feathers developed for warmth and then were accept, accepted to flight. Um, a turtle's shell was originally, it, it evolved for, protection, for, for digging and then accepted into protection. So the, how we apply it is, or how we applied it at the unconference was to invite a couple of people who had very specialized skill in an area that wasn't directly software development. Um, so we had a couple of people for the first time who were more business focused, um, which is not a strong acceptation, but previously it had always been really, you know, the hardcore software guys, whereas this year we had a few people who were more on the business side. And then we had a, a sexologist as well. It was the most popular talk of the con conference. That's yeah, it is. Fantastic learning experience. She she did a session called Binaries in Boxes, uh, which was probably the world most well attended. And then afterwards, we had a debrief and some feedback from her on on what she observed and how she experienced it and how we might change things. What was your favorite part of of any of the Driven Unconferences so far? I I don't can't pick out a particular story. I just love sitting in the middle of the room and watching everybody talking to each other because these are people who drive past each other on the road every day and and never speak and then when you overhear conversations happening and people sharing um it's I, I find that really awesome i suppose my biggest frustration is that we still have a hallway track 
in that, you know, we've tried to get really technical conversations going and we still find those conversations are the things that happen on the unconference. I've learned to make peace with it now, but I thought that was funny that, you know, we, we're trying to optimize for that happening in the unconference and then it's still between the tracks and afterwards that the really interesting conversations are happening. Fortunately, everyone's away for the weekend and it kind of can all fit together. And, and don't you think it would be interesting to have it for one day extra? I'd almost be too short. That was just a thought I had. We've thought about that. Sometimes if you make it longer, then the interesting stuff only happens at the end anyway. You know, it, right, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Um, but we have thought of doing something with the Friday. What we typically do at the moment is we have a driven day where um, all the different people from driven get together for the day and then we run the unconference afterwards. But I think that's, you know, if I can come up with, if we can come up with some sort of interesting thing to do on the Friday, it does mean that people would have to take a day off work. So um, it, we'd have to think about that. I think a lot of people would be okay with that. I think we should experiment with it. Yeah, I think doesn't the Ruby D camp, uh, well, Friday is primarily a travel day, I guess, but it, it's, it's definitely more than just two days. Yeah, generally the Friday is a code retreat. Um, so people yeah. arrive on Thursday night already, but a lot of people come in Friday after work and even Saturday morning. Still. And do you find the people from the code are moving as a at a different speed and as a separate group, or does everybody kind of get together? I think in the end, everybody kind of gets together. I think, I don't know if it's the same at the Driven Unconf, but at DCAMP, all the attendees are also responsible for making all the dinners and cleaning up and arranging themselves and all these shifts to make sure that everybody is looked after and, and cared for. And I think that kind of very quickly forces everybody to participate one way or another. Because I guess a lot of people aren't necessarily um, the kind of people that would stand up and talk in a crowd or if they're part of a, the most popular session, they might keep quiet because there's now you know 30 other people sitting around a, a circle. Uh, but yeah, we also have the same thing. It's like the the hallway track and around the braai and and while washing dishes. There's also amazing stuff that pops out. And you go like, why did that not happen in the main room just a few minutes ago? Yeah, so that that's ultimately what it's about: strengthening that network density between software developers and people in software, so that when we are stuck or we want to collaborate or start something new, that that that's that's there. Um, we can get into other deeper philosophies I have about things, but I think that might not be right for this podcast. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of Noam Chomsky lately. Um, actually, I've got one of my picks as well. Speaking of picks, is there anything else anybody uh, like that you want to ask? Or, or, or Kevin, is there something really important that you hoped we asked? Um, nothing off the top of my head. I'm curious if Chantal's got any questions questions from her perspective um no i just wanted to make a comment i guess that um it's been interesting listening to what you had to say it sounds like a lot of your philosophy around driven is people-centered um and not technology-centered and that's um a very refreshing point of view um to have in tech so yeah, the first 10 years of my career, and the reason I specifically got into software development was that I didn't have to speak to people. Um, and it took me a decade to figure out that that's actually, it's all about people. Um, and so a few years ago, I actually stopped coding and focused on trying to understand people and understand systems. And uh, that's what I've been doing for the past few years. So that maybe that's what, why I was a bit hesitant on the legacy code retreat, because I feel a little bit detached from that at the moment. I've been spending a lot more time just understanding interactions and people and how, how we work and how systems work. And that completely fascinates me. Uh, and that's become very much a part of the work we do as well. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of technical coaching, but if you go into a team of developers and they're taking work from a team of analysts and handing it off to work team of testers and management is measuring the number of coffees they drink a day, the problems are not in the code. Um, the problems are elsewhere. And, and it's been very much my journey recently to understand that Jerry Weinberg's got a fantastic quote that always sticks in my head. It's basically he says, it doesn't matter what the problem appears like, it's always a people problem. 
and I've I've learned to realize that's true. Yeah, Shucks. I've got uh, a bunch of things that I thought of talking about still, but uh, I think time permits. And that I mean, given the stuff you've been involved with from Driven to Know, the, that podcast, uh, the stuff you've been doing with Model in a Minute, um, the 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 your involvement with Agile Africa, the Evening of Mastery, Team Tourism, those are all things that I think. Uh, we, I would like to have got into, I just don't think we've got time this evening to dig into all of that. Uh, but I think just from my end, thanks for all the support you've had in the community. So I think a lot of people have felt it. Well, thanks for that. And I mean, I'm, I'm based in Joburg and I'm always happy to have a cup of coffee with anybody who wants to chat or wants to bounce ideas. I'm, uh, I, I enjoy doing that sort of thing. So I'm not the greatest person at interviews, so I hope it hasn't been too dry. Um, but I do know where the good coffee spots are, and I'm always happy for a chat. We'll have to strap a mic on you then. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the for the time. Right, so let's uh, head off into picks. Um, I'll start us off. Um, nothing really uh, mind blowing, but I'm going to pick the the code retreat. Uh, or the global day of code retreat coming up. If if anybody hasn't done it yet, go and do it. It's quite a hell of a lot of fun, and you learn a lot about working with people in interesting ways. Um, and you'll see a bunch of strangers become friends in in one day, and a bunch of your assumptions challenged. <laughs> I think Kevin, well, both Kevin's can testify to it. They've been to too many, <laughs> and I'll set them up. So that's from my side. Then. Kevin, do you have any picks for us? McAlvin? <laughs> Thanks for disambiguating there. Yeah. Um, nothing. To, well, the one that I've just wanted to give a shout out to, I guess, to is just a Google platform again. I don't know if you saw their post yesterday, I think it was, that Evernote is moving onto Google Cloud Platform now. Uh, they're really making some huge strides in the uh, in the cloud space and we've been running on them for oh, i think about five or six months must be six months by now um and yeah rock solid on google cloud platform yeah Chantal, any picks from your side um yes my pick this week is a website called have i been pawned i think it's pawned um i've actually never had to say that word out loud um and it's a website where you can check if you're account across various um, online sites like MySpace or LinkedIn or Tumblr or Dropbox if um, your data has been if your email address has been involved in a data breach. Um, at first I was quite skeptical when I saw the website I thought this could be a really good place to collect a whole bunch of emails to hack someone potentially but the sysadmin at work um, posted it and yeah, I think it's just a good idea just to see if your information is out there. And if it is, then to change your password straight away. Um, but then also related to that, um, I guess I just wanted to say that also a password manager is a good idea. I don't have um, a particular one to recommend because I think there's a few and they all function in different ways. But just having a password manager to... Um, manage your unique passwords is uh, a good idea i must say that have i been born is a great site always yeah. disappointed when i get an email from them like the last fm breach recently i was in there too yeah so i also have uh, links to some uh, if, if your shows up in certain things like that um i know mine popped up after a crystal web breach a while ago which was annoying yeah, I only checked up um, recently, but luckily this year I've really been made aware of having unique passwords for all my online accounts. What password do you use out of interest? Um, so I use the one that we use at work, which is KeyPass. Um, so I don't think that like the version for Mac is not particularly great, but then um, I also use mini many key pass on my phone so I can have so I can access the the database um yeah from my cell phone yeah key pass is the free one I haven't used that in ages but 
Cool, yeah, I think the big thing is that just to make sure you have some kind of passive manager. Oh, cool, thanks Thanks for those. And then, guest Kevin, any picks from your side? You mentioned a few books during the, the course of the show. Yeah, if you know anything about me, it's that I have a book problem. Um, I, I would never have guessed. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I tried to think of a couple that, that have recently blown my mind in interesting ways. The Scott Adams one is called How to Fail at Almost Everything and Still Win Big. Um, it's actually a really good book. I, I enjoyed it. Um, and then the two that I'm away from a guy called John Gore in the 70s. So it's pre any agile kind of stuff. So it's brilliant. And then Managing Flow, Naka and a couple of other guys, um, which has to do with the fact that how we model knowledge is wrong. And, and so how should knowledge-based organizations actually run? Uh, so there's a lot of really powerful stuff in there. Thanks a lot, everyone, for joining us so late on a Monday night. Kevin, it was great. Uh, thanks for all the, the knowledge and wisdom dispensed. Um, it's probably more than, than you realize from your perspective. I'm very grateful. I learned a lot. I'm glad to hear that. I felt like I was waffling a bit. No, no, sweet. Cool, everyone. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. And we'll chat to everybody again next week. Say goodbye. Cheers, everyone. Bye. Show notes for this episode can be found on zadefchat.io. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback on this episode or any other episode, you can tweet us at zadefchat or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the ZADefchat podcast, and we'll see you next time.